you all understand what I'm saying? They said the tomb is empty, so now they've got a problem. So what did they do? According to Scripture, they paid off the soldiers and said, look, just tell them you went to sleep. They came and stole them. Now, we're going to talk about that in just a second here, but they do not argue that the tomb was empty. They agree that it was empty. Why? But listen to this. Why would it be empty? What other graves are empty? I mean, all of a sudden, you know, you've got this one grave that's empty. Now, I understand that during that time period, like any time period, I suppose you could have some grave robbers and somebody could come here. But here's the, how coincidental or how improbable would it be that the one tomb that's empty and the body is missing happens to be the one where he predicted that that's what's going to happen. That's pretty improbable that somebody would just come along and, and just steal that one. There's the uh, atheist philosopher Michael Martin uh, concerning the evidence for Christ's resurrection, here's what he says. And you just listen to what this atheist says, and you think about it for a second. But it says, it is not inconceivable that on very rare... Every time I see that word inconceivable, I, I want to say, <laughs> that word does not mean what you think it means. And uh, you keep saying that word. And uh, <laughs> inconceivable, I think, it is not... <laughs> It is not inconceivable that on very rare occasions, someone being restored to life. Listen to this. It's not inconceivable that on very rare occasions, someone being restored to life has no natural or supernatural cause. Did you just hear that? It says, and he's further, I admit that some events could occur without any cause. Even if the resurrection, now listen to this, this is really his statement. Even if the resurrection of Jesus was justified by the evidence, it would not support the belief that, it, that the Christian God exists and that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you understand what it, look, this atheist does not deny that the tomb is empty but tries to explain how it is empty. And to explain how it is empty, he violates law and reason. You say, what law? The law of cause and effect. You know there's a law of cause and effect? He says that some events occur without any cause. That's what he said there. That's, that's retarded. He said some things, you know, there, there are some people, you know, it, it just without cause. He also is absent of reason for, he says, on very rare occasions, someone being restored to life has no natural or supernatural cause. Now, you, how stupid. Look, folks, let me help you. It's got to be one or the other. It's either going to be a natural cause or it's going to be a supernatural cause. He says it's not either one. That's not even within reason. Reason tells us that it must have a cause and that cause must be one or the other. It cannot be neither. The real heart is shown in the fact that he says that even if it could be proven, he would not believe it. You see, that's, a, that's somebody who's already predetermined what they believe. And so, he, and, and he comes, he's honest. He says, and, and even if you could prove it to me that he arose from the grave, I still don't believe in God. Isn't that amazing? Now, you see, no one disputes that the tomb was empty, so that just leaves us to prove the next that he's alive. I mean, the truth is, the world already says the tomb's empty. Yo, look, it's empty right here. It's empty. It's empty. And so, we already know it's empty. Now, let's talk about, is he alive? 
In a desire to explain why the tomb might be empty, maybe he was, they, they say things like this, maybe he was not really dead. Um, now, and I will talk about that, kind of that ridiculous statement here in just a minute, but uh, that's one of the things they say. Maybe he was not really dead. He was, he was swooning. He was not really dead. Or maybe, number two, maybe his followers stole his body. Now, history says this. When they posted the Roman soldiers, it wasn't one or two. Historically, they said when they, this is what the people that know this kind of thing said that, and this is, this is more from the secular viewpoint than it is from a religious viewpoint, that probably what they had was about 20 soldiers that would have been positioned there at the tomb. And this is what they say. Maybe his followers stole his body. With as many as 20 Roman soldiers, and here's the way they describe them. They describe them as trained much like Navy SEALs, you know, to that, that high level of training. The only difference between them really and the Navy SEAL is, is that their failure would bring their death. So they've been given a job. Maybe as many as 20 of them have been given the job to guard this tomb. And the, the stealth disciples <laughs> snuck in while 20 of them were there. And they moved the stone away and nobody heard it. These are some quiet people. And then they got in and carried him out and they... And all of a sudden, one of the 20 says, oh, no, it's empty. How reasonable is that, folks? Then they say, of course, the guards fell asleep. And that's why they all, well, look, that would be a miracle in itself. You got 20 guards that if they fail, they're going to die. And all 20 of them went to sleep. And, and we're going to break the seal of the tomb and roll the stone away, and they, none of them woke up? How much sense does this make, really? It makes none. You see, no one disputes that the tomb was empty, so that just leaves us to prove he's alive. Number two is this. This is the, one of the key points. Eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. So if he's alive and he's walking around this earth, somebody ought to see him, right? And again, you know, if you, uh, according to Scripture and according to law, if you've got two witnesses, two witnesses is all you really need to prove anything. Let's see how many witnesses it, we might have had. Uh, we, we have the, the disciples, of course, who saw him many times. But Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20, it says, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and she wept and stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels. And I, I won't read all this. I've got so many verses here. But Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20, verse 11 through 18, she saw Jesus after, the, after he arose. Uh, the other Mary, it's Rome, and Joanna, and at least one other woman, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Uh, they saw Jesus in the end of the Sabbath. As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, to see the sepulcher, these other women with them, <clears throat> and they saw Jesus. Peter, in Luke chapter 24, verse 34, and, and they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And so Peter had seen him. Uh, Cleopas and, and, and another disciple on the road to Emmaus, they saw him. And then 
You have uh, uh, the 11 disciples minus Thomas. Uh, they saw him, and, and that's documented in the Bible. And then the 11 disciples, including Thomas in John chapter 20, they saw him. And then the seven disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, they saw him. And the disciples at the mountain in Galilee, they saw him. And, and the Scripture teaches, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, that James saw him. And the disciples, before he was led to the Mount of Olives, gave the great commission to send to heaven. We don't even know how many disciples that was a song, but but the most conclusive, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 8 says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to Scriptures, and that he was buried and rose again the third day according to Scriptures. And listen to this, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen above 500 brethren at once. At once. Some believed, as I said, and I said I'd get to this, some believed he swooned and didn't really die. And so that's why they would have seen him. Now, that, you know, <clears throat> this is important because, okay, they saw him after the resurrection, but that's because he didn't really die, and so now they see him living again. Now, somebody beaten this bad, <clears throat> somebody whose body had been ripped apart, somebody who'd been crucified and had a spear uh, stuck in his side, now why? Now, after this short period of time, he's walking around seeing a lot of people. How are you doing after you go through all of this? You think you might be laid up for a little while? History and divine record tells us that he was beaten, his flesh torn by the cat of nine tails, uh, which is the, the, the whip, the cat of nine tails, which often caused death in itself. Then he was nailed to a cross, hung there struggling to breathe. Understand a man who is beaten, whipped, his flesh torn from his body, then nailed to a cross, left there to struggle and to breathe. Finally, while on the cross, a spear is thrust into his side and outpours blood and water. And here they say he didn't really die. And so that leads us to why would God say blood and water? Why is that put in the, in the Scripture? Why did blood and water come out of Jesus' side when he was pierced? The answer, the Roman flogging were scourging that Jesus endured prior to being crucified normally consisted, this is, listen to this again, normally consisted of 39 lashes, but it could have been more. That meant with this cat of nine tails, it's got nine lashes, but they're going to take this in 39 times. And inside this cat of nine tails, this whip was used called a flagrum, uh, consisted of braided leather thongs with, with metal balls and pieces of sharp bone woven into an intertwined, uh, into or intertwined, intertwined with uh, the braids. The balls added weight to the whip, causing deep bruising and contusions as the victim was struck. The pieces of bone served to cut into the flesh. As the beating continued, the resulting cuts were so severe that the skeletal muscles underlying veins, sinews, and bowels of victims were exposed. This beating was so severe at times uh, that the victims at times would not survive in, even to, in order to be crucified. And just to, to, you know, to tell it in a way the, the documentation shows that, that when it's describing that it would peel away the muscles and send you to the point that sometimes it would hook in even to the bowels and pull out the bowels or rip them open and the bowels would fall out. Those who were flogged would often go into what's called hypervolemic shock. The person would have lost so much blood he would go into shock. The results would be this. 
the heart would race to pump blood uh, that was not there. The victim would collapse or faint due to the low blood pressure. The kidneys would shut down to preserve bodily fluids. The person would experience extreme thirst as the body desired to replenish lost fluids. Scripture tells us Jesus experienced some or all of these symptoms after being whipped. He collapsed, which these symptoms describe. He collapsed, and a man named Simon was forced to carry the cross. And he cried while he was on the cross, I thirst. And it's another symptom of of how once all this pours out of him that he'd be drained of these bodily fluids. Sustained rapid heartbeat causes fluid to gather in the sac around the heart and around the lungs. The gathering of the fluid in the membrane around the heart is called the pericardial effusion. And the, and the fluid, fluid gathering around the lungs is called pleural uh, effusion. This is why when a soldier thrust a spear through Jesus' side, blood and water came from his side. Blood and water also prove his lung and heart had been, both had been pierced. So his heart and his lung had been pierced, and that everything that's described is, is this is the trauma that his body, and, and I, it, this is very similar, honestly, what I went through when the poison was in my body, and it started, uh, the, the fluids were pushed to every area of my body. They were just pushed away, and then, and then trying to find so much fluid, trying to save my heart, try to keep me alive, then it began to encase my heart. It began to encase my lungs so that I couldn't breathe. And, you know, three, three times the fluid was not in my lungs, but it was around my lungs. And, it was, and they went in well, twice, the third time they were going to, and then didn't do it, but twice went in, and I think a quart and a half or something of fluid they would take off of my back. And this is what's taking place here. So when they punctured him, that fluid came pouring out. The blood and the fluid came pouring out. Now, this is what Jesus suffered, and they say maybe he swooned. I mean, every, every time I read any kind of medical or physician that looks through the description of the crucifixion and what they had to endure, death is that's the only possibility. And even if some way, and here's one, one of these writers, right, that, that he really lived, he swooned, and they took him down, and in the coolness of the tomb, he woke up. When his body has been shredded, and his blood had poured out till he really had nothing more to bleed, and they finalize it all by sticking a, a spear in his side, and blood and water comes out. How unreasonable is that? Number three is this. The disciples, and this is such an important one, but such a simplistic one. The disciples were willing to die. They were willing to die rather than deny Christ's resurrection. You know, if there's anything that screams the reality of the resurrection of Christ, it's this. Folks, I don't know about any of you, but but if, if they came and stuck a gun to any of our heads and said, deny Christ, none of us, we'd like to think we'd know what we would do. But can I tell you, if I was one of the disciples, 
and I knew we stole him out of the grave. And they came and they were going to kill me unless I denied that or told the truth about that. I'm not keeping up that lie. I'm not going to die for a lie. And it's not even enough that somebody told me, and I'll be honest with you, uh, it, it really, that somebody told me that he arose from the grave, and somebody else saw him. I'll tell you why these guys died, the way that they died, and I'll give it to you in just a second. They did this because they saw him after he arose. It was so sealed in their hearts and minds. Listen, before he died, before he was crucified, died, and rose again, they're they're rejected. They're turning their backs on him. They go fishing. They're leaving him. But now he appears to them, and everything changes. There's no turning back now. Every one of them goes out to live their life. Listen, uh, Simon Peter martyred in Rome during the reign of Emperor Nero, believed to have been crucified upside down. Andrew went to Patras in western Greece in 69 AD with the Roman proconsul Aegeus, uh, debated religion with him. Andrew was scourged and then tied together, uh, 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 t- uh, then tied rather than nailed to a cross so that he would suffer a longer time before dying. Andrew lived, they believed, for two days during which he preached to passers-by. James, the son of Zebedee, James the Greater, uh, Acts 12, 1 through 19, says that James was killed with the sword uh, of Herod Agrippa. John, John was the only one of the original disciples not to die a violent death. Instead, he passed away peacefully in Patmos. But wait a minute, that's after he's been boiled in oil and exiled. Philip, the first of Jesus' disciples, became a missionary in Asia, eventually traveled to Egypt, uh, the Egyptian city of Heliopolis, uh, where he was scourged and thrown into prison and crucified in 54 A.D. Bartholomew supposedly preached in several countries, including uh, India, where he translated the Gospel of Matthew for believers in one account. Impatient idolaters beat uh, Bartholomew and then crucified him. In another account, uh, some say he was skinned alive and then beheaded. Which one, these two could be the one and the same thing where they could have uh, beaten him, they could have crucified him, they could have skinned him alive, they could have beheaded him, they could have done it all to him. Uh, Thomas, apparently, uh, Thomas preached the gospel in Greece and in India where he, was, he angered local religious authorities who martyred him by running him through with a spear. Matthew, according to legend, he was a missionary and was martyred in Ethiopia where he was stabbed in the back by a swordsman. James, son of Alphaeus, James the According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, James was elected by his fellow believers to the head of the church. Jerusalem was one of the longest-lived apostles, apostles maybe 94, but he was beaten and stoned by persecutors and then killed him by hitting him in the head with a club. Thaddeus, uh, Labaius, Ju- uh, Judas or Jude, according to several stories, he was crucified uh, in the name uh, in, in the cities, uh, both uh, somewhere in uh, Turkey or Greece in 72 AD. Simon the Canaanite or the uh, Simon the Zealot, Simon preached in, uh, in the west coast of Africa and went to England where he was crucified. And even Judas Iscariot kills himself knowing that he is a traitor to the Savior. The proof, infallible proof, is presented in Scripture and history and reason. Infallible means in, indisputable evidence. Some say this is a, a fable propagated years after the death by the disciples, but the empty tomb account in Gospel of Mark is based upon a source that originated within seven years of the event. And listen, 
uh, here, this is what's so important. When I saw this within seven years, the, this, this, when they say it's a, a fable, and, 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 but the empty tomb account in the Gospel of Mark is based upon a source that originated within seven years of the event it narrates. Listen, you can't have a fable until everybody that could refute the fable is dead. There's too many people to check with. You, you start a fable seven years after the event, they, you still got over 500 people. Some of them are still alive around the world where you can go and refute this fable. You see, a legend can only take life when all who could have witnessed are no longer around to testify. And number five, and I'm done, is the proof I believe that we have is that Jesus still lives in our hearts today. Christianity still lives, and the truth is, is it's not like the Muslim religion or Buddhism because a, a real Christian knows that something has changed inside of them. It's not a ritual or a performance or a, a weight upon them that they've got to endure because of some religious process it's like sweet lady, I got to talk to her today, and she came to me. She's visiting with us today, and we're gonna, hopefully we got her card, be able to go, go back and visit her some more. But she walked up to me, and she said, Pastor, could I ask you a question? I said, yes, ma'am, you sure can. She said, you said that any one sin would send you to hell. She said, does that one sin have to be the rejection of Christ, or can it be any sin? And I told her, I said, you know, the truth is those things uh, kind of blend in because, the, you know, yes, will lying send you to hell? If you've rejected Christ, it will. You understand? The rejection of Christ is the foundational sin that's going to send you to hell. For you can stop the lying and reject Christ and still go to hell. So, you know, I was trying to explain that to her and, and, going, and going through it. And I, said, and I, I gave this illustration. I, I don't hardly think I've ever used it before. Well, Hopper, could you come here for a second? I just looked at her and I said, let me try to explain to you what really the, what happens. Because she was so confused on this. I said, look. Here you are, you're a sinner, and here I am, if I represent Jesus for you. I said, when you accept Christ, you have to understand, because she just, she, she said, I've been taught so much that I've got to stop sinning. She said, but the only sin I feel like I can stop is stop rejecting Christ. And I said, here's all, I said, ma'am you understand that this is what Christ wants from you? He wants you to trust Him as your Savior. And the moment you do, here's what happens. He takes your place and you take His. I said, do you understand now? God doesn't see any sin because you just took Jesus' place. Where's your sin? She looked at me and she pointed. She said, don't you? And I said, yes, it's on Jesus.
And do you understand when somebody comes to that understanding, something happens inside of us. We know He's alive. This is not like some ritual. This is not keeping some commandments. This is not uh, working our way. No, this something happens. And can I tell you, uh, the smile that came across on her face this morning when I said, all that sin that you've ever committed and ever will commit, it's on Jesus. Because He took your place. You know what that said to her? I'm finally free. And she said, Pastor, I've never been taught that. I've never heard that. Well, it's the only thing that will set you free. Thereby being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Thereby we have peace with God. Being justified by faith, thereby we have peace with God. That peace comes when we understand we traded places completely. He took everything on him. I got his righteousness. Now, understand, I may, that righteousness is, is encased in a mass of messed up flesh. But one day that flesh will drop away, and you know what's all left? The righteousness of Christ. When the flesh is gone. So just the fact that he lives within you, that ought to be proof that he is alive. Thank you, Brother Hoffman. So the real question comes, what do you believe? If we believe in the resurrected Christ, this should be evident. And I've said this recently, but if we believe in a resurrected Christ, it ought to be evident in a resurrected life. Just as Christ had to die to be resurrected, our old self, our old nature must die if we are to live a resurrected life for Christ. Now, just a couple of questions and we're done. Is your life different than it once was? Is your life any different than it was when you were lost? That's the real thing that we have to, to look at. If, if the living Savior lives in me now, and if we just traded places, and she, she said, that's what it means. She said, then I'm a new creature. Amen. And I said, yes, ma'am, that's when you become a new creature. If we're a new creature, a new creature ought to live differently than the old creature. There ought to be something different. You say, what, what, what are you talking about, Brother Hooker? For every one of us, it might be something different. But there ought to be something different. You ought to know I'm not who I once was. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I'm going to be. But thank God, I'm not what I was. And that's really what we ought to. Father, I pray that you bless tonight.